Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Laura Kramer. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monocle Radio. On the show ahead, we'll touch on some of the stories that will dominate headlines in the new year. We'll explore concerns about a widening conflict in the Middle East. We'll look ahead to the crucial Taiwan elections and look back on the January 6th riot and ongoing repercussions three years after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. I've also got a revamped version of one of our most beloved weekly features, and we'll hear an interview from the usual host of this show, Fernando Augusto Prosecco, in which he speaks to the team behind a magazine about magazines. Plus, tips for success in 2024. All that and much more in the next hour with me, Laura Kramer. Let's start with a highlight from the briefing. In his New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping ramped up the rhetoric on Taiwan, saying China's reunification with the self-governed territory Beijing claims as its own is inevitable. The comments come as Taiwan prepares for presidential and parliamentary elections on January 13th, which will determine the island's cross-strait policy for the next four years. Monocle's Georgina Godwin caught up with William Yang, a journalist based in Taipei. William, the island's current president, Tsai Ing-wen, is stepping down after eight years in power. Who are the front runners to replace her? So the front runner is the current vice president and also the presidential candidate from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, William Lai, Lai Qingde. Uh, he is a doctor turned politician and has been in the uh, cabinet since Tsai Ing-wen came to power eight years ago, he was first the premier, and then four years ago was Tsai Ing-wen's running mate, and has been the vice president ever since. Uh, he's right now leading in the poll by about seven or eight percent, and uh, trailing behind him is the uh, candidate from the main opposition Kuomintang Party, which is a China-friendly party that is uh, vowing to re-establish uh, closer ties with China. Uh, he is currently trailing behind by about 7%. And then the third uh, candidate is a Taipei mayor, former Taipei mayor turned uh, politician uh, who is whose name is Ko Wenzhe, and uh, he is a third party candidate that is proposing to offer the uh, Taiwanese people a alternative choice from between the two main traditional parties. And what's his stance on ties with China? So he has uh, repeatedly uh, set the slogan that both sides of the Taiwan Strait are one family. And at the same time, he said that he is still going to try to maintain the uh, strong ties with the United States. But uh, one concern with him is that he is one of the least with the international experience among the three. And at the same time, uh, also having quite some of a controversial relationship both with Washington and Beijing because uh, he is known to be unpredictable and also known to be unorthodox, oftentimes uh, likely to say and make comments that will be viewed by Beijing and Washington as uh, unsustainable or even outside of their comfort zone. And so uh, in, the, in the case of this, uh, I think there, the level of suspicion in him and both Washington and Beijing are much higher compared to the other two candidates. Mm. Now, let's have a look at uh, uh, Xi Jinping's New Year's comments and the change in tone from his speech the same time last year. Uh, how is China increasing pressure on Taiwan and what has he said about that? 
So we have seen China uh, unleashing this carrots and sticks strategy for the last few weeks. On the one hand, uh, the including from Xi Jinping and today from the Taiwan Affairs Office, uh, they have all repeated this call that the reunification between both sides of the Taiwan Strait will be inevitable, which is quite uh, surprising in a way that it's becoming so close to the election. Usually, China will be quite low-key in terms of commenting on elections issues in Taiwan, because traditionally, this is a time of the year that if they make too much gesture or comments, then it will backfire. Taiwanese people will likely uh, vote in a direction that is against Beijing's preference. But this time around, it seems like maybe they have more confidence in terms of the fact that there is a chance that the candidates that they prefer will be able to actually turn the election around. So that's why they are doubling down on this call that the reunification between China and Taiwan will be inevitable. And at the same time, we are continuing to see China uh, deploying fighter jets and naval vessels and also balloons across Taiwan. Like last night, uh, in fact, a balloon flew across Taiwan's uh, sky before it disappeared uh, on the eastern side of Taiwan. And this balloon tactic is a new thing of their a gray zone tactic that is really trying to put Taiwan under pressure. And it's closely associated with the rhetoric that Beijing has been saying that this election is a choice between war and peace and a re-election of the Democratic Progressive Party, the ruling party, will mean that Taiwan will be further pushed towards the brink of war with China. And are there any direct attempts at electoral interference? For instance, we understand that there, I mean, there have been allegations that China put pressure on the Taiwanese rock band May Day. Right. So there have been uh, multiple different, uh, very obvious allegations and also evidenced uh, interference, including they have been paying uh, more than a hundred local borough chiefs and village chiefs to go on sponsor trips to China. And during the trip, these uh, local leaders will be asked to sign documents to uh, pledge that they will be voting and supporting uh, candidates that are preferred by Beijing, which is from the uh, KMT. And at the same time, including uh, the Foxconn founder Terry Gold, who in fact was running as an independent in the poll up until the last minute of the registration. His company was facing an investigation into uh, tax issues when right after he announced that he's going to run. Um, and then so that was widely believed to be the reason that forced him out of the race in the end. And also this uh, latest uh, incident of the rock band being investigated for lip syncing in China. And, you know, supposedly they were asked to sign a document that will pledge that they support China's vision on both of the cross-strait status. And so basically, I think this time around, we are seeing a lot more obvious ways and actions unleashed by Beijing to interfere in the election, which is quite unusual compared to four years ago. Mm. Now, we understand that Taiwan is considering joining the International Criminal Court. Would that deter China? And given the fact that only 13 countries officially recognize Taiwan, uh, what would that mean on the question of Taiwan's statehood? So the potential inclusion of Taiwan into an organization like the International Criminal Court, I think is going to uh, continue to convince the Taiwanese people that the 
foreign policy under the current government uh, of DPP and Tsai Ing-wen has been working, which is that Taiwan will continue to find ways to increase its own international participation through international organizations, and at the same time, uh, getting the supports from like-minded democracies to back its bid. But at the same time, we also know that these international organizations often are highly uh, vulnerable to threats coming from Beijing. And so the likelihood of Taiwan actually will be able to join an international organization at the, I think, a level like the International Criminal Court will remain, uh, I think, like questionable just simply because of the fact that Beijing is very deeply having a lot of influence in the uh, on the international arena and in the UN system. And so uh, it, it's definitely going to lobby and use different ways to have a lot of the other countries to try to block Taiwan's bid to join the ICC. And William, just finally, we know that China's expelled nine military officials from its parliament, including four generals of the army's strategic missile unit. And that follows the appointment of a a new defence minister. Has this weakened the People's Liberation Army? Would it slow Xi Jinping's military ambition? I think it will definitely have an impact on the capacity and the capabilities of the POA uh, because of the fact that we it's very clear that she part of the uh, investigation I mean the uh, purge is because Xi Jinping wants to strengthen his control over the military to install people that are loyal to him uh, so the fact that he's prioritizing loyalty over expertise in a lot of these uh, very strategically important units within the PLA will mean that uh, there will be potential I think, concerns about the deployment and the uh, capabilities being uh, correctly assessed. And at the same time, I think uh, it is just showing the fact that the purge is, in fact, more for the purpose of strengthening Xi Jinping's personal power rather than for the greater good of uh, China or China's uh, military. And so I think experts widely believe that uh, un- unless he has uh, decided to stop the purge and, you know, like uh, allow the military to get back on its own structure and also own operation, then, you know, like the Chinese military will face a turbulent period of time. And they don't see this purge to stop anytime soon because they believe that uh, Xi Jinping is really just not done yet in terms of, uh, I think, uh, reforming, transforming the Chinese political and military structure into something that he believes is fully under his control. That was William Yang speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin on the briefing from Taiwan. Now a highlight from The Globalist. Last week, Israel claimed to have targeted and killed several members of Hezbollah in a series of strikes on southern Lebanon. It was one of the deadliest days for the group, which is aligned with Iran and has immediately led to concerns about how the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza may now be spreading. Emma Nelson spoke to Monocle's Middle East correspondent, Leila Mulana Allen. These were strikes that happened in the south of Beirut, uh, in the suburbs of Beirut. And what uh, happened was that the... or that. Um, there was a meeting that was being held between various uh, factions. It was Hamas, but also a Lebanese militant group in an area that's run by Hezbollah, but it wasn't a Hezbollah meeting. Uh, And what happened was that they managed to strike the building and a car outside, killing three members of Hamas and several members of the other militant organizations as well. 
Um, just explain to us, I mean, how this has left Beirut feeling, because it's um, what it's just uh, the killing of Salah al-Aruri, who's a deputy leader of Hamas, um, was killed the day before. This, this suddenly puts the focus very sharply on Beirut. Well, it does put the focus on Beirut, but the reason they've gone after people in Beirut is that not everybody from Hamas is based in Gaza. And of course, a war has also been ongoing with Hezbollah across the border uh, in the south of Lebanon. So that started, I mean, theoretically, Israel and Lebanon have been at war for years. And of course, there was a huge war in 2006 uh, that killed many people in Lebanon. And since October the 8th, when uh, Hezbollah sent some missiles into Israel across the border uh, as a sort of show of support for the October 7th Hamas attack, there has been ongoing fire back and forth. Now, it's been worse on the Lebanese side in terms of what Israel's been sending in. More than a dozen people have been killed, many of them civilians, and they have taken out uh, Hezbollah militants too. They claim that they've killed more than a dozen of them. Hezbollah says it's a smaller number than that. Uh, Israel saying that a few key people were killed yesterday as well. That hasn't been confirmed by Hezbollah yet. But they do usually come out and actually say yes, because they have these large scale funerals. Uh, they also had Salah al-Aruri's funeral uh, and the rest of the Hamas leaders um, and Islam al-Jamiyah, the other uh, Lebanese faction leaders that were killed uh, the other day. They had those yesterday uh, in Beirut. Now, people in Beirut are extremely concerned because Southern Lebanon has been, a lot of areas of southern Lebanon have evacuated further up into the country because people are so concerned about what's coming across the border. If Israel has taken the step now that they feel comfortable to be targeting people in Beirut with missiles, that's a very different situation. It's not an area entirely run by Hezbollah, although the neighborhood that they carried out the attack in was run by Hezbollah. People are extremely concerned, both in terms of the fact that it shows Israel's very comfortable with potentially inciting a larger conflict and that it means it could spread into other residential neighborhoods. And Beirut is an incredibly heavily packed city uh, with not great infrastructure and certainly wouldn't be able to cope with uh, having to send the people who have already evacuated to Beirut, as well as all of Beirut's citizens, somewhere else to take refuge. Because that's a bigger concern, isn't it? The escalation into a wider conflict. It is a great concern. It's been a concern since the beginning, since October 7th. Initially, there was a report from Israeli leaders that they had considered in the first few days expanding their operations beyond what they wanted to do in Gaza. They then decided that wasn't a good idea. But as I say, these exchanges of fire have been kind of nudging the needle back and forth. Neither side really wants a war on that frontier. And Hezbollah certainly doesn't want to create a war because they're in a very good position in Lebanon where they run the government uh, or they have a huge hand in the government, but they really do have the kind of decisive factor at the moment. And they do not want to get caught into a situation where they're blamed by the Lebanese people, many of whom they're already very unpopular with, for starting a war that takes many Lebanese lives. However, if Israel starts the war, that's a very different situation because Hezbollah can then claim that they are defending Lebanon uh, so that they, so they would then carry out that war. Now, thus far, the thinking has been that Israel does not want a war on a second front, but what they've done this week has really pushed the needle in terms of how much of a risk they're willing to take. The Israeli Defense Minister, uh, Yoav Gallant, said uh, to a visiting US envoy this week that there was a very narrow window in which they felt that diplomatic uh, proceedings could fix the problems, the tensions with Lebanon at the moment. And of course, Israel says that Lebanon and Hezbollah neighborhoods are harboring these Palestinian militants, as well as Hezbollah, who are declared enemies of Israel. And they're going to do what they need to do to protect themselves. Uh, now, of course, the US and other Western countries are urging restraint. 
US leaders and French leaders, France is very uh, influential in Lebanon, are trying to get in there and negotiate. They're sending people in to try and make sure this doesn't escalate, but people are extremely concerned. There's a lot of tension on the ground in Lebanon. Of course, most of northern Israel has already been evacuated. It's just soldiers up there. So they are ready for a war if one does start. How does this, how is how is this avoided, given the fact that I think, I think, as you said, there is a general consensus that, that a wider conflict is to be avoided. And Iran um, does not want to get dragged into um, any kind of conflict via Hezbollah or any other group. But there is a fit, there is a sense there, isn't there, that were Israel to up the pressure and to increase the number of strikes, how would Lebanon respond as a nation? So, sorry for interrupting you. What I was going to say, it's interesting that at the beginning of um, this sort of post-October 7th period of conflict, everyone thought that Iran was pushing, that Iran, because Iran had funded Hamas, and uh, that they would this was potentially them pushing a conflict that they want with Israel. It's become very clear that that's not the case. Iran has even stepped forward and sort of said, you know, we were funding Hamas, but we didn't know about this specific attack and we're certainly not going to step up and conduct an all-out war now. That's not what they're looking for. They've got a lot of their own problems internally to deal with. Now, Lebanon, part of the problem that Lebanon has is that Hezbollah is the strongest military force in Lebanon. The Lebanese armed forces, the army, is not the strongest force in Lebanon. Now, years ago... There was a negotiation and the deal when Israel pulled out of its occupation of southern Lebanon was supposed to be, and that happened in 2000, that Hezbollah would lay down its arms. Hezbollah has always claimed correctly that they, now whether or not they should keep their arms is another question, but it is correct that the Lebanese armed forces are not capable of protecting Lebanon against the kind of attack that Israel can stage. And that is because the allies, the Western allies of Lebanon, are the same as the allies of Israel, and they do not arm the Lebanese armed forces to an extent where they could do any more than pretty minimal defensive procedures in their own country because they don't want to anger Israel. So the truth is that actually Hezbollah is the only force that can defend southern Lebanon to the extent that it did in 2006. And 2006 changed a lot of people's attitudes towards Lebanon, as a, uh, towards Hezbollah as a force in Lebanon, because they did in the end, win. That's how they see it. And a lot of Lebanese see it and, you know, push Israel out and not allow Israel to to achieve its aims in 2006. And there was a lot of surprise about how much they were able to do that. So as much as people say, many people in Lebanon who are not Hezbollah supporters say they're very frustrated about Hezbollah and the problems they create, the reality is they would want them to protect the country if a full all-out war does take place. And we saw a lot of cooperation between the army and Hezbollah during the middle years, 2015, 2016, when ISIS was spreading into Lebanon across the border from Syria. Hezbollah and the Lebanese armed forces fought together in a pincer movement to push ISIS out. So there is precedent for cooperation and the armed forces, the Lebanese armed forces already cooperate with Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon, as does the UN presence there. So we would likely see cooperation again between those different armed forces to try and stop Israel uh, from conducting all-out war and fight against them if they do. Now, a highlight from Monocle on Saturday. January 6th marked the third anniversary of the U.S. Capitol riot that occurred in 2021. Three years on and with another presidential election looming, Monocle's Chris Chermack looks at how views and memories of that day have changed and whether American society and voters remain divided today. I remember seeing the pictures from here in London. 
of people breaking windows and doors back at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. It's hard to describe the sort of shock I felt as an American myself rather than as a journalist. It felt like a personal attack just because of what the Capitol building in the U.S. represents. It wasn't unlike the feeling that I remember getting after the September 11th attacks on New York in 2001. The other feeling I had was that this was rock bottom, that we couldn't really descend any further from here. Fast forward three years and, well, I'm not sure we've reached bottom in the United States just yet. Facing the prospect of another Trump-Biden election, American voters and society remain as divided as ever. Having been back in the US for the past year and a half, what's striking to me is how differently January 6th is remembered in society, depending on who you are, where you live, who you watch, read, or listen to. Both sides see January 6th as a dark day for democracy, and a majority of Americans are concerned about the state of American democracy today. But the reasoning is what differs wildly, depending on where you stand. For many Trumpian conservatives, January 6th remains the day that democracy was usurped and that Trump's supporters were lulled into a trap. Conservative media stars like Tucker Carlson today openly suggest the whole thing was essentially staged by the FBI, that police were luring people into the Capitol, and even that it was really a left-wing plot by groups like Antifa who were behind the whole thing. Trump supporters currently in jail are hailed as heroes in this narrative, wrongfully imprisoned. And even if you don't believe those conspiracies as a conservative voter today, you're likely to believe that something was off about 2020. That the media and establishment are against you and what you believe. What's striking too is how impenetrable this narrative is, propagated by a self-reinforcing loop of misinformation and disinformation that has enveloped so much of the conservative bubble in America today. As a journalist, I've tried to break through to engage in discussions with voters. I've had Trump supporters tell me that I need to open my eyes, see what's really happening. Now, to be fair, the liberal bubble in the US can be equally impenetrable. And what's more worrying is that, aside from curious journalists like myself, most people just aren't talking to each other about it anymore. We're all too exhausted to start an argument. We'd rather see January 6th as a piece of history, instead of something living that we still have not worked our way through in American society. If there is a silver lining, it's that supporters I've spoken to at Trump rallies tell me they're unlikely to stage anything similar again. Because whether they believe it was staged or not, they've seen what happens, that they can end up convicted of a crime. My own hope for 2024 is that we can find a way to debate the election and cross the aisle without being disagreeable. Because the one thing we can all agree on is that our democracy is at stake. For Monocle, I'm Chris Chermack. Now, a highlight from The Daily. Frequent listeners of the program will know and expect our weekly feature, Letter from New York. Sadly, though, in 2023, we saw our final dispatch from Henry Reese Sheridan. Since October 2020, Henry has sent us more than 140 fabulous letters. And we will, of course, keep in touch with the occasional note from the Big Apple. However, the format lives on. To start the new year, here is the first from our new feature, From Around the World. We start with Lillian Fawcett in her letter from Singapore. Spend any prolonged period of time in another city and you're bound to reflect on your own. Singaporeans have their own view on London too, and telling someone here that you've lived in the British capital often invites one of a number of responses. 
One of the most common. Oh, I could never live in the UK. The taxes are very high over there. They're not totally wrong. The tax burden in the UK is the highest it's been in decades. Meanwhile, Singapore is famous for its low tax rates. I won't bore you with the intricacies of my visa status, but as a temporary foreign worker, I have more or less no interaction with the Singaporean taxman. Instead, my own comparisons between this tropical city-state and the British capital revolve around much more, well, British concerns, namely public transport and the weather. As a bit of a history nerd, I love the oldness of London. There's something undeniably romantic about the centuries of stories embedded in its red brick townhouses, crumbling government buildings and fading pub facades. Less romantic are the decades of grime embedded in the London underground tube seats. For some reason unknown, surely even to its designers, the seats are made from a thick rug-like fabric that clings onto all manner of dirt and, one assumes, bodily fluids. Take note, travellers. As a semi-season Londoner, my travel hack is just to avoid wearing skirts so they don't touch the back of your legs. Singapore's slick, air-conditioned MRT, on the other hand, has practical, wipe-clean plastic seats. Although I doubt there's even much need for cleaning. Food and drink are banned on the MRT, and it closes by 1am most nights, which limits the chances of the kind of drunken debauchery visible on any weekend, or in fact weekday, night in London. Brit's annoying public transport habits very often relate to alcohol. Loud singing, chanting, eating hot food, etc. My own personal pet peeve, though, is when people keep pressing the button to signal they want the bus to stop. Fine, maybe the second person didn't hear the bell or see the lit-up sign at the front of the bus that says, bus stopping. But does it really need pressing a third, a fourth or even a fifth time? Singaporeans have plenty of enraging public transport habits of their own. The first is their almost resolute refusal to allow passengers off the train before they get on. Some commuters are so giddy, so vibrating with anticipation to board the 5.43pm downtown line train to Bukit Panjang, they must push past an elderly lady who's trying to step out of the carriage. Another favourite is to play TikTok videos or have FaceTime calls on their phones out loud. Londoners can be guilty of this too, and are usually met with a very British and very ineffectual tut. But over here, it's prolific. And most baffling of all is no one else seems to mind. When I look around the carriage for a bit of camaraderie via eye contact, a shared wry smile with a fellow passenger, there's not a battered eyelid in sight. It strikes me as unusual for a country where people don't shy away from being direct. I learnt this the hard way after an approximately 25-minute talk from my hairdresser about how the humid weather was clearly making my hair greasy. It was more than a little humiliating, but there was something oddly enjoyable about the exchange. It was the longest conversation I've had about the weather since I arrived. Even with my innate British ability to discuss the weather, there just isn't much weather to discuss in the tropics. Singaporean forecasts can usually be summarised in two questions. Is it humid? Definitely. Is it raining? Probably, but it won't be in an hour. My instinct to discuss the weather is therefore an itch that's remained unscratched for three months, a blighty-shaped hole in my conversational repertoire. So yes, having a hairdresser slag off my greasy locks for the better part of half an hour was a bit wounding, but in another way, pleasingly familiar. London has plenty to learn from Singapore. 
However jazzy the pattern on the tube seats, surely something wipeable is best for a transit system used by 5 million people a day. And I really could have done with a polite word from my hairdresser back home that I shouldn't get a fringe. For Monocle Radio in Singapore, I'm Lillian Fawcett. Now, a highlight from The Stack with Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is fitting that the first interview for 2024 of the program is about a magazine for magazine people. With features that include an ode to the magazine storyboard and insights about the industry that is dear to so many of us, Fernando caught up with Joanna Cummings and Peter Houston, the team behind the Grub Street Journal, who stopped by Midori House. We have both worked in the industry a long time. I've edited numerous titles and we really felt that there was something needed that spoke to and on behalf of people in the industry. There's been a lot of idealism, especially around indie publications, and we felt that we needed something that was more realistic, more honest, that spoke to real people doing the real jobs, about what was exciting them, about what was challenging them, about where they thought the industry was going to go. And we also thought it was a good opportunity for us to try a little bit of an experiment to see what it was like to launch a print publication in the current market. You know, paper prices going up, readerships declining, etc. We thought it'd be interesting for us both to kind of go through that process and document it. And then we could hopefully pass on some of the stuff we learned. But obviously, we also wanted to do something that is essentially a business-to-business magazine. But we wanted to do that differently too. We wanted to cover things that wouldn't be covered in your standard B2B publication about magazines. We wanted to do it in a tone that you wouldn't find in standard B2B publications. So that's all the stuff that came together and was the birth of the Grub Street Journal. And uh, Peter, although there is the B2B side as well, but let's be honest here, it looks fun. It looks super fun. It's not like your, perhaps your traditional uh, B2B. Just look at the cover here. Why won't print just lie down and die with kind of a hallowing hand coming out of the cemetery? So many magazines, I think these days particularly, if you're not having fun making them, then you know, you're probably not going to get rich. So I think that was a huge part of it for us. You know, the very first issue we planned in a pub, in our local pub, and, you know, we had so much fun just planning it. The titles, the first one was the Don Quixote issue, what kind of idiots still make magazines. Second one was the Jerry Maguire issue, shows the money in magazines. This one's why, why won't, you know, Walking Dead, why won't print lie down and die. And I think it's those themes that everyone's talking about them all the time. You know, people talk about magazines in print all the time, but I don't think they necessarily talk about it in the way that we've tried to talk about it as if we were down the pub. You know, if you manage to get, um, I don't know, whoever you manage, for the very first issue, I managed to talk to Mark Allen, who's a B2B publisher, and ask him what kind of idiots still make magazines. That's the kind of conversation you'd have in the pub. And I think we're trying to get that inside this business-to-business business title. We're having fun with that. It was important for us to do that. And, of course, we've always worked for other people, produced magazines for other people. And we suddenly realised when we were planning it, oh, my God, 
we can do whatever we want. We can have a B-movie cover, B-movie-inspired cover if we want. We can really go for it. We can swear. We're really enjoying kind of exploring that side of it for sure. And I guess you also learn more about the challenges as well, about kind of being the owner of your own magazine, right? Absolutely. What I like about the title is that it's not perhaps overly optimistic about print. It's no. definitely not negative as well. It just has a kind of a common sense view in a way, which I think it's missed because... I do see people sometimes coming to me, I mean, with all the best intentions in the world, and they say print is back. I mean, it's always been here. I know there's some challenges, but come on, you know, don't you agree with that kind of statement? 100%. Well, no media really dies, does Mm. it? So, and print's the same. But it's, at the same time, it's no way at the levels it was in the 90s or like early 2000s. So we, yeah, we really wanted to be realistic about it. And our kind of tagline is brutally honest but relentlessly optimistic and we're treading that line all the time. We've got to be realistic about what people are experiencing and what people are finding difficult, but also still celebrate what people are doing because they're working so hard and producing such fantastic publications. So. Absolutely. And, and and just because I, I got into this topic, Peter, I think you wrote something very interesting about how some people compare, you know, the resurgence of print and vinyl. Can you expand? Because I, I do think I, I very much agree with you on that one. So one of my other jobs is the Media Voices podcast. We do a weekly you know, podcast, we do a newsletter and we do, we have a website. So I wrote for the website. And the point of that piece was no print is not like vinyl. The reason I was just getting fed up listening to people talking about it was actually a BBC article and it's a, it's a nice article, it's a really <laughs> good article and it was talking about NME coming back into print and how print was having its vinyl moment and I just thought no absolutely not <laughs> you know when vinyl I'm old enough to have bought vinyl when there was nothing else to buy so that was all you could get and when CDs came in I couldn't get rid of vinyl quick enough because it was horrible. You know, you got scratched and it just, CDs were much better. And then CDs, you know, were replaced by streaming. And the point with vinyl was vinyl went to zero. You know, it got to the point where there was pretty much no vinyl production capacity on the planet. And what happened was people saw it as an artifact some of the smaller record companies saw an opportunity, so they went into sort of what you might call artisanal pressings. And it's grown and grown and grown over 15 years. It's had 15 straight years of growth. That's not what's going on in print. Print has never gone away. Print it still accounts for anywhere up to 80% of publishers' revenue, depending on you know what sector you're in. So to compare the two is... A, lazy, and B, not helpful. Because I think what's going on with print now is that mainstream print is declining in the sense of volumes and values, but it's like almost like the commercial publishers have learned from the indie publishers. Enemy's a great example. They're not publishing 250,000 copies and they're not giving it away for free on the street. It's not even on the newsstand. It's almost a marketing play in that sense. And print, in that sense, has become like vinyl and it's a sought-after artefact. But commercially, I think it's a very different proposition. Much more powerful. I mean, brings actually still quite a lot of revenue in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And Joanna, I want to talk to you about one story that you wrote for the for the new issue as well, which is about paper and sustainability. I love that piece because there is like a little kind of diagram here, myth busting. And I think I should show this to some of my friends, you know, and I love that. And I think that's such an important part of, of the business as well. If you don't mind telling us a little bit more about the story. Yeah, well, we became aware of a company called Two Sides and they're a non-profit that aims to educate people, not just in publishing, any company that uses any kind of paper product, about the actual realities of the use of paper and recycling. And I think most people would guess that, you know, it's in a really bad way. You know, print paper is a limited resource. We're running out. It's costing a fortune. We need to scale back on the print that we do. And they're very much promoting the use of paper, And it doesn't have to always be recycled, you know. We need virgin paper to keep that sustainability cycle going. So we decided to cover it because I just thought, this people need to know this, Mm -hmm. you know. You don't have to scale back your print magazine. You don't have to go digital. And in fact, they said, Josh Birch, who I spoke to, said that a lot of people are scaling back on paper for, in inverted commas, environmental reasons. But actually, it's a lazy, money-saving thing. And it's misinforming consumers, readers of magazines, people who buy packaging, whatever. When in fact, it's really important that we do keep using it, that the replenishment of forests, etc., is at unprecedented levels. And that's really positive. So, yeah, we just really wanted people to know the, the kind of, again, the realism of it, the, the real story behind it. I'm loving this interview. We're destroying all the lazy myths. That's perfect. That's what I like uh, as well. And Peter, tell us a bit more. I mean, who do you think is the public of the Grub Street Journal? I mean, is it people from the industry or do you think sometimes maybe someone out of the industry might enjoy this? I'd love for people outside Mm. the industry to read that and know more about what magazine making is about. I think for us, primarily, it's people inside the industry. Mm. So people making magazines... Indies, as well as people that are working for the bigger commercial publishers. You know, the, so some of the people that we have, and we try and get as big a mix as we can. Mm. So we've had people you know, from Future. Deborah Joseph is in there. We've got, um, who else have we got that's from one of the bigger publishers? Well, people like Mark Allen. We have Fiona Hayes, who's like been a creative director on multiple editions of Vogue. So we're trying to get that kind of voice in. But then also people who are proper indie publishers. Joanna did a beautiful interview with a, uh, a couple of people that do a magazine called Somewhere For Us, LGBTQ title in Scotland. And, you know, those guys are real, you know, cold-faced indie publishers. For 2024, I mean, I know you guys are very realistic, as we mentioned, but can we be a little bit optimistic about print? I want to hear maybe from you, Joanna, as well. I think so. I think we have to yeah manage expectations Mm. but people are appreciating print there's still a market for those more niche publications that both create and speak to communities you know the more generalist titles for a while now obviously have been declining those more specific titles that cater to people who are interested in a very specific subject I think that is where it's going to continue to really flourish. Thank you very much, Joanna and Peter. And for more information, go to grubstreetjournal.com.
Now, a highlight from Eureka. Lily Silverton is a coach, journalist, and the founder of the Priorities Method. It's an approach to life and work centered around values-driven, purposeful, and intentional decision-making. She decided to work to her own blueprint, emphasizing the importance of starting with defining priorities before setting goals, really demonstrating the transformative power of putting values first. Lily stopped by Midori House to talk to Monocle's Tom Edwards about making her practice more accessible with the creation of her new coaching journal and to give us some tips for success in 2024. I have been a coach now for about six, seven years. And when you train in coaching, a lot of it is very goals focused. And that's brilliant. We all want to achieve our goals. We all want to set them. And that's fantastic. And I love them. But I coached in a very goal focused way for a long time. And the more I did it, the more that I started to feel that maybe something was amiss and it didn't sit quite right with me. And I think it was due to the idea that with goals, it's so obviously outcome orientated, right? Like, and if you don't achieve them, you feel a little bit, can I swear? Oh, you can swear with okay. absolute alacrity. It's, it's, <laughs> it's encouraged to. <laughs> you can feel shit. Like, and it's really demotivating, right? So if you're really focused on the outcome and you don't achieve it, it's really demotivating. So I started to look at what I felt was more important and this idea of priorities and values just kept coming up over and over again. So I started this podcast, actually, was the first step, which is called Priorities and Interviews People About What's Important to Them and then my idea was, you know, what's important to you is essentially how you live your life and what dictates your experiences and choices. And that sort of bled into my coaching. So I started to really reorientate things and flip the goal setting. So of course, I still do goal setting, but I really start with the values of what's important to you. What are your priorities? What do you want your life to look like? What is the process going to be like? And then setting goals at the end of that. But whether or not you achieve your goals is sort of circumstantial. That's super interesting. And I I think one thing that strikes me straight away is an increase in frequency of the appearance of notions like doing things in a more purposeful way or bringing greater, what's the word, intentionality to your sort of decision making. And I wonder, there's a bit of white noise around that. How does that work, this idea of bringing process, because it's got to have a bit of rigour, and I guess it has to be sort of trackable and chartable in some way, towards those things which can be a little bit nebulous. How do you bring some... I, what would you call it, sort of professional discipline to getting towards those goals when they are things which even to define sometimes what's your purpose, what's your intentionality can be quite difficult. So how do you, what is the means by which that process is brought to bear on it? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So these like lofty ideals, how do you actually <laughs> get them to work in reality? So there's lots of processes and, and coaching tools that we use throughout that. So yes, you define your why and your purpose and you get really clear on that and you're writing it down but from that and from what's important to you, you're, you're using those more lofty ideas and questions to build out a very clear map of what you want to go after. And then you set goals and you use coaching tools in order to meet them. So in the journal, for example, there's habit trackers and, you know, things to improve the week and you're writing down your priorities each week. So you're really staying on top of what's important to you, but also, as you say, like getting it done. Because, again, it's very nice to have ideas, but the hard bit is getting it done. And actually, that was partly the idea behind the journal. One idea was one aim of it is to make coaching more accessible to people, because obviously I work with lots of big businesses who can afford to hire me or individuals. But coaching can be quite prohibitive for a lot of people. Mm. 
for various reasons. So the idea was to have a coach in your pocket kind of tool that anyone can use at their own pace and time. But also an accountability buddy, because it's so easy to go to a coaching workshop or have a couple of sessions with someone and write lots of goals and have lots of great ideas, especially in January. And then no one fucking does them. So... (laughs) And I know that because I'm also that person. You well, know. Yeah, this is a bit like this kind of, it's, it's this sort of gym membership model of forward progress, isn't it? And talk to me a bit more about the, the journal, because obviously we were sat here in Monaco HQ. We love printed products. We have lots of favourite diary and journal makers. And it is really interesting. It's There's, a, I guess, a lot of complexity that's boiled down into something quite simple and elegant, which I guess is your your your, <laughs> your, your MO. My worry would be I'm an inveterate doodler. I have a bad rep Mm. here in the business for doing that. If, for example, in my joyful moments, if I just filled that with doodling, would that be would you would that be frowned upon? I would absolutely love that. Oh, you so would, I actually say, be, if, you read, if you read the intro at the beginning, oh, I actually I say, that, fill it in as, exactly as you like. And okay. if you're a doodler, fill it in with doodles. You know, mine is covered in coffee stains, and <laughs> my kids are always picking it up and drawing in it. So I'll just find like weird pictures or scribbles across it. Why do they do that? It. Yeah, um, and tell me, it's interesting because obviously it's done on a weekly basis, but then there are kind of quarterly reviews. How important is it having Lily that kind of that rigor, making a commitment that it isn't just a thing you can turn on once or do once. It's a big undertaking. Is that sometimes hard? I don't know, even talking to when you're working with clients at the start of the journey, do you sometimes think this person's going to need to need a bit of a nudge along? Are they going to need to really commit if we're going to make the progress we need to make? I hope that by the time someone gets to me, they're at the point where they want to meet themselves wherever they want to go. However, yeah, I mean, it is a commitment, right? The idea with this one is whenever I'd done a journal in the past or looked at journals, they were all daily. And I absolutely, I can do that for about 10 days and then I'm never doing it so again. Like 10 days is pretty good. 10 days is pretty good. Maybe like a day or two. And it's like, oh, all you need is five minutes a day. So I don't have five minutes a day and I can't keep that motivation up. So the idea with this is five minutes a week just to lay out those things. And then you do your reviews every month, which also take about five minutes. So it feels really manageable. But the whole idea is if you can just keep it open in front of you, then that's sort of enough to really remind you what's important. That's obviously after the coaching session at the beginning, which does take a little bit, bit more of time. time. And is that, are you one of those people? I mean, is that is it fun digging around? I always sort of worry, oh, you know, what would people find if I started to share, share my anxieties, goals and ambitions and all the rest of it? But I guess, well, you know, and you have a journalistic background where kind of digging around, whether that's into people's motivations or to what's happening, that's that idea of finding those threads, those narrative threads is interesting. Is that endlessly fascinating? And do you never quite know, despite your now lots of experience, what you're going to find once you start the process? I have no idea what I'm going to find. And it's so exciting. You try to come into any session, whether it's like a big corporate one or one to one, or just a casual chat with someone with no expectations or ideas. However, we all have those, right? And yeah, as you say, I've got a journalistic background, so I love finding out things about people and I love people discovering things about themselves as well because I find that a lot of people have just never thought about what's important to them or never thought what they want their days to actually look like. So my favourite thing is helping, empowering people to ask themselves those questions and find out those answers. Well, I was going to ask you a little bit about metrics for success because I guess you can get people closer to these goals, even if they are somewhat abstract. But I guess for you, professionally, personally, you need to have your own metrics by which you judge the success of the business, the enterprise, the integration of new ideas and approaches and so on. How, how do you calibrate those? What are those metrics that you personally work to? I'm sure people would be interested, especially those who've been kind of on the other side <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, getting the journal out is one of them. 
getting the journal out was a really big one. I've always wanted to publish a book of some form and also with this was able to do the entire process myself. So instead of working with a publisher, which was an option, I chose to do it myself so that I could print and bind it all in the UK. And the cover is made of old recycled plastic that's been woven into yarn. And as you say, you know, Monocle here, you're really big into print. I'm also really big into print because my background in, in magazines. So the design and the quality of the paper, all of that, being able to realise that and hire almost an entire female team as well, putting more economic empowerment into women's hands, even my, like, all the way to my suppliers. So That's great. Female teams. It's, so, it's very mm. expensive and difficult to do that. Yes. Though. Yes, it is. So, which I guess is a case <laughs> of point number about doing stuff with purpose and intentionality. You have to sometimes take the much more complicated, expensive, difficult road in order to get something that delivers what you need. It is, it's very good. It's an embodiment, a physical manifestation, if you like, <laughs> of the overall um, ambition, I guess. Yeah, I just I think if you're putting a product out into the world these days, if you are able to, then putting things like sustainability and regeneration at the forefront are essential. That was Lily Silverton speaking to Monocle's Tom Edwards on Eureka. Now let's toast the new year with a glass of Portuguese natural wine. Here's Tom Edwards again with a highlight from The Entrepreneurs. One of Portugal's biggest wine-producing regions is the Alentejo, a province which covers a third of the country, south of Lisbon's River Tagus, all the way down to the Algarve. They've been making wine there for thousands of years, thanks firstly to the Romans, who planted the vineyards and started making wine in great amphora clay pots. Then it was monks and monasteries that carried on the tradition, providing communion wine. Amphora wine, known as talia in Portugal, is now one of the hottest trends across Alentejo, and as a natural wine, is attracting even more attention. Alastair Lithed is launching a podcast on Portuguese wine in the new year and has been immersing himself in the history, culture and the places where they've been making wine this way since Roman times. For Monocle Radio, Alastair filed this. They've got a lot to sing about here in Alentejo, and wine not only makes a great subject matter, it also helps the traditional cante Alentejano choirs get in the mood. They're singing about their village, Villa de Fradish, or Friars Town. It's at the heart of Talia or Amphora wine country, where they've made wine this way for nearly 2,000 years. We may not have abbots anymore, the chorus goes, but our wine cellars are like cathedrals. And there is an adega or winery on every street here. People used to make it for their friends and family, but now it's becoming big business. But the young entrepreneur I'd come to see is a 28-year-old former mining engineer called Teresa Caero. At her adega, Generações de Talia, or Generations of Talia. We are in a winery with 250 years. My grandfather bought the, this build. He lives upstairs and the, the winery is uh, it's downstairs. Here we have 50 Italians, uh, like uh, some people say amphoras, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but here it's Italian, so okay. uh, it's a clay pot. 
okay? Uh, where, um, so we have this since the Romans uh, at 2,000 years. So mm. it uh, comes generation to generations, and uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> this type of wine I remember always because uh, when I was really child, like baby, I, I remember the sound <laughs> of the wine. That's the trickling she'd hear every November when this natural wine is ready to drink and starts to flow. Tell us a little bit about how you make wine in these, um, these, uh, these talia, these amphora pots. Okay, so the big difference, we use all the grape, okay? We use the skins, we use the stem and the seeds. Yes, all, all, all things. Okay. So we put that inside the talia. Uh-huh. Then the fermentation will start... And during this fermentation, all the solid parts will come uh, up. Wow. So there's a layer of stuff of all the things that are raised to the top near the, the mouth of the uh, or the top of the, the pot. And how do you deal with that? What's next? Okay, what's next? So then, uh, t- uh, two or three times a day, we will mix uh, everything. If they don't do that, the CO2 builds up and the clay pots can explode. Every winery has floors sloping to the middle where a drain leads to another talia below in case of disaster. Once fermentation is over, the ball of yeast and skins becomes a natural filter. All the solid parts uh, comes down and become uh, be, uh, what we call the mother. Okay, mm-hmm. so the co- the mother is the solid parts. In uh, the bottom. In the bottom. In the bottom. Okay, um, and then you will have the sun. It's the the wine. Okay, <laughs> then <laughs> then then we we wait uh, two months. Uh, and then we open the tap uh, so slowly and the, the wine will across the mother and this is the, the natural filter. The wine runs clear. Talia has its own classification in Portugal, but to qualify it has to stay in the pot until, very specifically, November the 11th, St Martin's Day, when the opening of the Talias happens and there's a huge celebration. That's Teresa's husband, Joao. She fell in love with him and decided to give up diamond mining, move back home and learn to make wine with her grandfather, Professor Arlindo Maria Ruivo. She did a winemaking course and now you can buy their different styles of wines in the fanciest off-licenses in Lisbon. She introduced me. You've been making wine here for a long time. Tell us. Já faz vinho aqui há muitos anos. Conte-nos um bocadinho sobre isso. 50 anos. 50. 50 years. 50 years. And what's it like working with your granddaughter? Como é que é trabalhar com a sua neta? É muito difícil. It's a hard work. Okay. Why? Porquê? Porque ela é que tem os livros. Ela é que estudou. E muitas vezes... Uh, because uh, he's saying that it's hard to work with me because uh, I I learn and uh, sometimes he wants to do with one way and I want to do on another way and uh, it's a little bit difficult but it's good. <laughs> so whose wine is the best? Qual é que é o melhor vinho? O meu ou o seu? É o meu. Of course you'd say it's yours. <laughs> 
Villa de Frades is a typical small Alentejo town with a church and a central square lined with orange trees. All the houses are white with bright colours around the edges of the windows. The St. Martin's Day Festival in Villa de Frades keeps getting bigger every year, attracting all sorts of visitors. I'm Pedro. I'm here to taste the wine <laughs> and to see the opening of the pot. I was born two kilometers from here, so uh, this is my youth. All right, so this is the first one out of the tally this year. What do you think? Still a little bit, a little bit corky, uh -huh. uh, but really soft. Promise a lot. Uh, different, but it tastes earthy. That's pretty good. I quite like that. And Tina was one of the Americans in town for a tasting. I just love the idea of natural old wine. So we're here to drink as much as we possibly can. <laughs> what do you think? It's wine. It's wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good. <laughs> and it works every time. <laughs> and it works especially well with food. Traditional Alentejo black pork. But to try that, you're going to have to come here and visit. That was Alistair Leithhead for The Entrepreneurs. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced and presented by me, Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Mariela Bevan. <laughs>